It was terrible in Cologne. No more church services, no more weddings, no more baptisms and no more funerals officially took place. That was the situation in Cologne in 1119. But how had it come to this? We are here in Sancta Colonia, aren't we? So holy Cologne. It's not as if there were too few church buildings in the city. How then can spiritual life come to a standstill? What this had to do with the rising citizenry fighting against the Archbishop of Cologne, in Cologne, you'll find out right after the intro. Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past and can therefore be seen as a quite a microcosm of European history. In this podcast you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up until our present time. In the last episode we had left the early 12th century on the occasion of the 200th anniversary of the organized Cologne Carnival, I just could not resist to move away from the so far strict chronological path. I had announced that I wanted to do this every now and then, when it's appropriate and it was appropriate. And what can I say? Not only did you let me get away with it, but the Carnival episode was the fastest listened to episode ever. Partly it performed twice as much as a regular episode in the same time period. Many, many thanks for that. Dankeschön. But now we return to the early 12th century. A short recap. In 1106, the citizens of Cologne had cleverly exploited a dispute between the emperor and his son for their own advantage, expanded the city and even successfully fended off a royal attack on the city. Just as a quick reminder, the term citizenry is a difficult one for the High Middle Ages. We will discuss why this is so in the near future, but for the simplicity of the narrative here, for this podcast episode, however, I will continue to use this term. In this episode, Henry V would try again to conquer Cologne. Whether Henry V would be successful in conquering Cologne this time, we will find out in this episode. As shown in the intro, in 1119, in one fell swoop, no church services, no baptisms and no burials were allowed in Cologne. What had led to this? The question we should rightly ask ourselves, who could order such a thing in a city in the first place? Hmm, the Archbishop of Cologne, of course. In this episode, therefore, we enter a new round in what is still a long struggle between the archbishop and the citizenry. A struggle in which emperors and popes would sometimes lose themselves. Let's break down what led to this situation in 1119. Of course, the archbishop of Cologne, Frederick, must also be taken into account here. He was exactly since the year 1100 the chief shepherd of the Cologne church. Of course, as was now customary, he came from the high nobility within the empire, from Bavaria. 
everything below that was meh. Or have you forgotten how much the inhabitants of Cologne had once scorned Anno II from the beginning because he was only of no uh, low noble descent? But what was the last time with Roderick? Since always, rulers, whether Roman emperors, Merovingian kings, Carolingian emperors, Ottonians or Salians, they had always played a decisive role in deciding who became the new Archbishop of Cologne. In 1100, the new Archbishop Frederick was the last Archbishop of Cologne, who was only appointed by the will of the then Emperor Henry IV. After that, the spiritual heads of the Archbishopric, the Pope or the Cathedral Chapter always had their fingers in the pie. Frederick was to preside over the Cologne Church for 31 years, from 1100 to 1131. And this period was marked by many upheavals that generally occurred during this time. In my opinion, Archbishop Frederick was a clear pragmatist and real politician. Almost everything he did was motivated by the desire to strengthen the power of the Archbishopric of Cologne as a secular power in the empire. However, I do not want to deny him his duties as a spiritual leader. Quite the opposite. What we see today as a stark contrast that a bishop exercises spiritual as well as temporal power was considered in those times as a common unity. This was not only the case in the bishops of the empire, but also in France and England. Bishops appeared in imperial politics as powerful and self-confident players of the time. What would our beloved Theophanu have been without the powerful armies of her ally, Archbishop Willigus of Mainz? It is the time when the magnates of the empire, such as dukes, counts and even bishops, begin to pursue their own territorial policy for themselves. Fiefdoms once granted by the emperor were now to be permanently owned and inherited in their own family line. Likewise, one strives to own coherent territories and not just a village, a castle and a monastery here and there. And one has as a goal to secure the possessions comprehensively. And with what? Exactly. With a characteristic of the Middle Ages, castles. With the construction of castles. This boomed at that time, really. Everything that the magnates of the empire did, they did now first of all for themselves and not as in the past as loyal subjects of the empire. Complicated topic, unfortunately much too long for here at this point. Archbishop Frederick diligently participated in this territorialization, so the expansion and consolidation of his own domain. The monastery Maria Lach, for example, he brought into his possession and built on the Rhine south of Colonia Bonn, the castle Rolandseck on the left, and the castle Wolkenburg on the right side of the Rhine, in each case quasi opposite to each other. Both castles in this lower mountain range south of Cologne near Bonn have crumbled as has the more famous castle next to them on the Drachenfels, the Dragonstone. But even nowadays, still beautiful hiking areas and a great place as a tourist to go there. I am there myself in the summer quite often. 
Frederick had thus created a powerful bulwark in the Rhineland. Here, if he wanted, he could block off the Rhine south of Cologne and Bonn for shipping. He could do the same at Neuss, north of Cologne, in the lower Rhineland, since Neuss was also owned by the archbishops of Cologne. The same applied to Cologne and Deutz on the opposite side. Thus, the Cologne archbishops had built up a strong base in the Rhineland, and they were already eyeing Westphalia as well, a region bordering to the northeast of Cologne. There, the second pillar of the Cologne archbishopric's power would emerge pretty soon. Archbishop Frederick's political pragmatism was clearly evident during the three decades of his reign. In disputes, whether with the emperor, the citizens of the city of Cologne, or the pope, he always went back and forth, without clearly taking sides in the long term. His motive was always to increase his own power for his rule in the Cologne archbishopric. And in doing so, he was completely in the spirit of his time. Do you remember the episode where the old Emperor Henry IV sought protection from his son, the young King Henry V, in Cologne 1106? Archbishop Frederick, like his subjects, the citizens of the city of Cologne, had been loyal to the old Henry IV, but in doing so had directly earned himself a ban from the Pope, who supported the young Henry V at that time. Therefore, in the same year, Frederick quickly switched to the side of the young Henry V, by which he regained the papal favor, but he turned the citizens of Cologne against him with doing so, who, as you know best, were still loyal to the old Emperor Henry IV for some time. Here, the city ruler temporarily turned against his own city. For the next few years, Archbishop Frederick remained faithfully at the side of Henry V, who ruled the empire alone from 1106 after the death of his father. As was typical for a bishop who also acted as a prince of the empire in those times, as a vassal of Henry V, he accompanied him on several war campaigns, and even during the numerous internal disturbances in the empire that Henry V had with princes or other bishops, the Archbishop of Cologne remained at the emperor's side. So far, so good, right? But you know what my consistent thesis is about the city of Cologne in terms of its relationship to power. Exactly. One is flexible in terms of loyalty, whether it was the Batavian revolts during the Roman Empire in 70 AD or the move to the East Frankish Empire in the early 10th century. In 1114, the Archbishop of Cologne decided to maintain this Cologne tradition. We will go into this in more detail after a short break. In that year 1114, almost unexpectedly, there was a rift between the Archbishop of Cologne and the Emperor. And not only that, Archbishop Frederick was not only against his emperor that he supported now for several years, but even led the opposition against him, which include almost all of northern Germany, including the lower Lorraine areas such as the Rhine-Meuse region. Short recap, Lower Lorraine was the Rhineland around Cologne. It also included Aachen, Liège, Antwerp, but also Cambrai, which is in French today and since it is French, 
I probably mispronounced that city. Why did the Archbishop of Cologne do that? Why did he suddenly change camps? Frederick's motives lie in the dark. Perhaps Henry V had sought to consolidate his power too quickly and too effectively in the eyes of the Archbishop of Cologne, who now even joined the papal camp that was always against the imperial camp at that time. It was probably feared that the son might become like his father, who also had fought against the Pope for a long time. But whatever motivated Archbishop Frederick, he must have taken it quite seriously, since he was not only joining a rebellion, no, he was the freaking leader of this rebellion against the Emperor Henry V. The citizens of Cologne, on the other hand, were in complete agreement with the Archbishop's decision against Henry V. This was not because they acted in pious service to their city ruler. No. For one thing, only eight years had passed since Henry V had attacked Cologne head-on. Cologne had been able to repel the attack, but the payment of 5,000 marks of silver to make peace with the new ruler of the empire was still gnawing away at the Cologne citizenry. That was already reason number one. Cologne still had a bone to pick with Henry V. The second was a general tendency within the rich merchants and craftsmen's class within Cologne and uh, its community. From now on, they would only look at how they, as the city's economic elite, could best protect their own trade routes and, above all, not anger their trading partners. And since this uprising was a revolt of political actors from the Lower Rhine, Cologne's citizens were naturally on their side, since they controlled the important trade routes to the North Sea and thus to England via the Rhine. This took Henry V quite by surprise, because he had actually intended to take action against the Frisians in 1114. The Frisians were late payers of tribute, and Henry V wanted to invade with an army on the spot as a friendly reminder, I guess, including uh, fees, of course. Alarm bells were ringing among the citizens of Cologne, because if Henry V wanted to ensure that the Frisians on the North Sea coast, who insisted on the greatest possible autonomy, continued to pay their annual tribute, he, the emperor, had to bring the Rhine River, which flows into the North Sea, under imperial control, so that he, the emperor, could effectively influence and, above all, dominate this region north of Lower Lorraine. This was a major thorn in the side of the residents of the Rhine, above all, the city of Cologne. They wanted to keep the Rhine open as a waterway, without a higher imperial authority, without anyone's higher authority. From the city of Mainz, in the southern Rhineland, Henry V wanted to set off northward with ships and an army passing through Cologne and then visit the, visit the territory of the Frisians via, via the North Sea. But at Königswinter, today's city on the Rhine south of Bonn, was the end of the line, because the citizens of Cologne blocked this campaign for the aforementioned understandable reasons with their own archbishop at their side, even if we cannot fully understand Frederick's personal motives in retrospect. The year 1106 
seemed to repeat itself. Once again, the Emperor Henry V would find himself in a dispute with the city of Cologne in 1114, a city which, due to its size and mighty fortification, represented the bulwark on the Rhine in the region. And not only that, while the citizens of Cologne were almost alone against him in 1106, they now also had their own archbishop and almost the entire north of the empire with them. Not a good starting position for Henry V. Okay, the campaign against the Frisians had failed even before Henry V even was close to getting there. Henry V now had to clean up his realm on the Rhine at home first. But what should he do? Try to storm Cologne and its walls again? Henry V still had good memories of how well that had worked, namely not well at all. And so it came to something that was unfortunately to happen more often during the course of Cologne's history. As Cologne remained an impregnable fortress over the centuries until 1794, the opposite today city quarter of Cologne Deutz on the right bank of the Rhine fell victim to numerous enemies who actually wanted to close in on the opposite bigger city. The much smaller city of Deutz that was not officially a part of Cologne back then seemed to be a much easier target for Emperor Henry V. The plan was simple, conquer the smaller Deutz and from there paralyze the trade of the city on the Rhine and try to um, disturb Cologne's um, yeah, traffic. So it was like moving in on the other side of the street and throwing stones into the front yard of the opposite neighbor. Really clever plan, but the city inhabitants of Cologne had reckoned with this. Armed, a contingent of Cologne citizens had previously marched across the Rhine and encamped at Deutz. As mentioned before, the Imperial Army had dropped anchor at Königswinter, that was on the right bank of the Rhine, and then marched north to attack and conquer Deutz, which was also on the right bank of the Rhine. In July 1114, the Imperial Army reached Deutz. But lo and behold, especially the archers within the city Cologne army fought outstandingly. Cologne's dense volleys of arrows convinced Henry V to retreat with valid arguments. Perhaps he could have defeated the uh, small armed group of Cologne citizens at the end of the day, who knows, but the question would be whether the price would not have been too high for Henry V, who was only stopping by. He wanted to go to Friesland and not fight along and... Uh, big battle against Cologne. So Emperor Henry V withdrew. Cologne and neighboring Deutz were safe. But unfortunately, this was not true for the surrounding countryside. The cities of Bonn and Jülich went up in flames. The archbishop, as lord over the entire archbishopric, had of course deployed his troops throughout his domain and had probably not been quick enough to protect his cities like Bonn and Jülich sufficiently. At Deutz, in turn, the Cologne citizenry had fought on its own authority, as its own actor, not waiting for the um, archbishop to call to arms. 
that economically prosperous elite together with its servants and clients had fought in Deutz, not the troops of the Archbishop. This clearly shows what a serious opponent a well-organized city society could be when a few armed inhabitants could even make an imperial army withdraw. The people of Cologne will probably have remembered this for the future. The struggle continued for the next years. Together, the city of Cologne, the Archbishop's troops and the troops of the um, allied Lower Lorraine insurgents destroyed the Emperor's possessions in Rhineland and Westphalia and the possessions of the Emperor's allies, like Andernach and Zinzig, both towns on the Rhine in the Middle Rhine region, were destroyed. The same happened to Dortmund in the Ruhr region and Lüdenscheid in the Sauerland. If you're not from the region, those places might not have any meaning to you. But I have to name it for, for, for informational purposes. But how did it come to that event now in 1119, what we talked about in the beginning, when the Archbishop banned all spiritual life in the city, when there were no more baptisms, weddings and burials, let alone church services? In 1114 and the following years, nothing of this is to be guessed at first. A simultaneous uprising of the Saxons in the following year of 1115, Henry V was so massively defeated by his opponents in the Battle of Wilfisholz that he, the emperor, would never again exercise de facto control over the great and powerful Duchy of Saxony. A bitter loss for Henry V. But then after several years of conflict, movement came to the Rhineland and the Meuse region in 1119. Let us devote ourselves to this after a short break. In 1119, the bishop of Liège died, so a new bishop had to be found. Who could decide this? Well, that is the big question of this time. The so-called investiture controversy had already been smoldering for decades. Who has the right to appoint and install a bishop in the empire? The emperor or the pope? The emperor says, I have the right for it because when a new bishop is elected, he is also holding my fiefs and he's also an imperial prince to me who gives me taxes and gives me troops for war campaigns. The pope, on the other hand, says, wait a minute, I am the leader of Christendom. I should decide who is a spiritual um, um, figurehead somewhere in uh, the, the the word of Christianity, so to speak. So above all, the emperor and the pope fought over this question. Quite a complicated topic and wrong podcast to illuminate this in detail. There are other podcasts you can listen to where this topic has been done justice, like the History of the Germans podcast by Dirk. But what makes the whole thing even more explosive Liège lies exactly in the territory of the Lower Lorraine insurgents area. Almost exactly in the middle even. And who still remembers, Liège is also a suffragan bishopric of Cologne. That is, a bishopric that was ecclesiastically subordinate to the archbishopric of Cologne within the Cologne church province. 
like the bishoprics of Münster, Minden, Osnabrück and Utrecht. Here Emperor Henry V seized the opportunity that presented itself. He arbitrarily appointed his own candidate as the new Bishop of Liege, allegedly for a small motivating sum of 7,000 pounds of silver. And who was not happy about that? Well, Archbishop Frederick, head of the Cologne Church Province and, oops, also leader of the rebellion against Emperor Henry V. The latter, of course, said no to the whole affair. A bishop loyal to the emperor in the Cologne Church Province, while I, the Archbishop of Cologne, is rebelling against the emperor? Never. This, however, led to great discontent among the Lord Lorraine uh, magnates and thus the united front against Henry V started to crumble because they couldn't agree on how to solve this question of who becomes the new Bishop of Liege. Of course, the emperor took advantage of this. Coming from the south, he pushed his way up the Meuse River. The local rulers there were probably caught off guard. They surrendered to the imperial authority. This actually left only the Rhineland as an opponent for Henry V in the Lower Lorraine region, and above all, the city of Cologne and the archbishop's domains. And here, dear people, it happened again. The famous Cologne characteristic of being extremely flexible when it comes to loyalty and to seek one's own advantage. Cologne's trading partners on the Meuse had surrendered to the Emperor. Well, then we do just that as well. This was bitter for Archbishop Frederick of Cologne, who had been negotiating at the same time with the Emperor in order to finally settle the conflict. One point of negotiation between the two had been the dispute over whether Henry V would be allowed to enter Cologne. Henry V wanted to do that because every time he tried to get access to Cologne, it was denied, and in a time where public actions were even more important than uh, saying things because there was no TV, social media, newspapers or something else, but people could still see and interpret things they saw, this was quite important for Henry V that he was able to get into the city without big problem and maybe have a cup of yeah, a cup of tea and coffee he could not have at that time. Uh, um, um, a, a glass of wine. Yeah, a glass of wine. And then chill there a few days and then leave the city. But proving in this way that he was the rightful ruler of the empire in every corner of this empire. These negotiations between the emperor and the archbishop of Cologne is quite interesting because this shows that despite all the emancipation efforts by the Cologne citizenry, Henry V still saw the Archbishop of Cologne as the unrestricted ruler of the city in that moment, especially when the question came up who would have the power to decide to open the city gates for him. Despite the events of 1106, when it was the citizens of Cologne who had barred the gates to the young ruler into the city, he still believed, so Henry V still believed, if Frederick could settle a deal, then he could open him the city gates. But Archbishop Frederick refused to open the city gates for him. Henry had been excommunicated by the Pope at this time, 
as it often happened in this period, to uh, Emperor's keyword investiture controversy. Archbishop Frederick, therefore, refused to allow the excommunicated emperor to enter Holy Cologne, Sancta Colonia. But then came the shock for the Archbishop of Cologne. In the fall of 1119, Henry V entered the city of Cologne. What he had failed to achieve in 1106 and 1114, even by military means, the emperor now achieved without any bloodshed. The citizens of the city allowed him to enter the city and welcomed him as a guest, with all that entailed. After 1106 and 1114, as as being said, Henry V finally succeeded in entering the city that year. Well, third time's a charm. This was a slap in the face of Frederick. His own city, the place where his bishop's seat was, had completely duped him. The citizens of the city, his subjects, had once again decided arbitrarily and above all had shown who really had to say here about who could enter the city and who could not, and did not um, give the archbishop the choice to decide that. Archbishop Frederick could not simply let this pass. Unlike Anne II, some 40 years earlier, the Archbishop of Cologne then resorted to a means that had become established at this time. He imposed the so-called interdict on the citizens of the city. This was a means of excommunication that imperial bishops were quite happy to use. And so we get to this event of the beginning of this episode, in which no church service was held in Cologne, no weddings were celebrated, no one was baptized, and no one could be buried. This meant a deep cut in the everyday life of the people. Apparently, the entire clergy really did leave the city. The beneficiaries were the wandering preachers who did not feel directly affiliated with the Archbishop of Cologne, for it was not the Pope, but the merely the chief shepherd of Cologne who had pronounced the interdict. What is interesting here is that we do not yet know who among the citizens of Cologne were the decision-makers at this time due to the lack of sources. However, Archbishop Frederick must have known... Uh, who among the influential rich citizens had been the driving force to seek reconciliation with the emperor without uh, his approval. After all, Anna II knew the same thing when they, the citizens of Cologne, rebelled against him in 1074. Unlike Anno, however, his successor now, Frederick, did not banish those directly responsible within the city's economic elite, but simply directly banished all the inhabitants within the city. This is really interesting because with it the Archbishop of Cologne himself recognizes extremely involuntarily and perhaps also unintentionally that the citizens of Cologne represent as a common political unit and not as an Archbishop like Anno still understood it 40 years earlier that every single person in the city is only his respective subject. Here then. Frederick did indeed acknowledge that there was a community among the inhabitants of the city that uh, was probably also united, at least at that time, behind the decisions of the ruling class. 
Nevertheless, the interdict must have cut the people of Cologne to the core. It was terrible for a then deeply Christian world to be excluded from the sacraments. They, therefore, immediately began to negotiate with their city ruler, and probably with success. Shortly after the proclamation of the interdict, Archbishop Frederick lifted the severe punishment for the inhabitants of Cologne. From 1122 onwards, Archbishop Frederick and Henry V were also once again palsy-walsy. The Concordat of Worms ended the investiture controversy between the emperor and the pope that had been going on for half a century, and with it, Archbishop Frederick, who was on the side of the pope in this dispute, also ceased his opposition to Emperor Henry V. And if you want to know more about this Concordat of Worms, I only can recommend you History of the Germans podcast. Nevertheless, the events of the years 1114 to 1119 give a foreshadowing of the further lines of conflict or courses of action that were to dominate the history of Cologne from then on for a while. To the first, that what I had already pointed out. The citizens of Cologne always looked at how they could protect their trade routes. This meant a free access to the Rhine, no stress with the lower Lorraine elites and rulers, and an undisturbed access to England. And that also shows us who really was in power among the citizens of Cologne. Not the normal um, day laborers. No, it was the merchant class. The other thing is sovereignty over Cologne city fortifications. With his numerous possessions in the Rhineland and then also in Westphalia, the current Archbishop of Cologne was one of the most powerful princes of the empire. We learned this again in this episode. I mean, he nearly single-handedly still fought against the emperor after all his allies were gone, including his own um, city, uh, well, including his own biggest city, because I would not call Cologne the capital. There are no capitals in the High Middle Ages. But of all cities in which his episcopal see was located, Frederick often de facto no longer had control over who entered the city and left it. In 1106, 1114 and 1119, it was the people of Cologne that had decided on their own authority. Should such a powerful imperial prince like the Archbishop of Cologne put up with that? Hmm. That was something that would lead to many conflicts in the future. The third line of conflict, which will also bring conflict potential between the citizenry and the archbishop slash city ruler, and has already been tested by the events at the end of this episode, couldn't the people of Cologne not seek a direct alliance with the king in order to bypass the archbishop as their unloved city ruler in a direct way? Hmm. One would consider that more often in the future. This, what I told you in this episode now, was another step taken by the citizens of Cologne on the way to becoming their own political players on the stage of imperial politics and becoming a communal society and forming a commune. Let's leave it for this time. I'm still a bit exhausted. The carnival episode I had created in just only seven days after the episode before that came out was already really exhausting. Then came carnival itself, and who knows how carnival um, 
affects the mental and physical well-being the days after to the people who celebrate it, well, that person knows that it is better to do a little less and to relax a little bit. Therefore, I'm also grateful that the two historians, Hugo Stehkemper and Karl Dietmar, have presented the events discussed here in this episode so well in their Cologne City History volume on the High Middle Ages. The book History of the Archbishopric of Cologne, from the beginnings to the end of the 12th century, was also very helpful in this regard, to name my two biggest literature tips on this topic. What will we talk about next episode? Phew, good question. Do we take another look around the streets of Cologne at that time? Do we look at who actually lived here in Cologne, the normal people, so to speak, that I always want to portray and fail to do so because of lack of sources and literature? Or do we look at other events during that time? I don't quite know at the time of the recording. No, not yet. But it will certainly be interesting. You can believe me that. Fortunately, thanks to my roadmap, I always have some ideas in store. At the end of this episode, it is time to say thank you again. I would like to thank Silvia and Maika for their generous financial support, which they gave me in February. And thanks to Louis, Cisse, Fernando and Sven as new Patreon members. Patreon is a way where you, dear listener, can support this show with just a small amount of one euro slash one dollar or more to keep this show running. Thank you so much for your support to all of you guys. Of course, you can support this podcast for free as well by diligently telling others about it. Why don't you do that right now? You surely know someone who finds the history of Cologne or Germany or Europe as exciting as you do, right? At this point, it only remains for me to say thank you very much for listening and until next time, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>